And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we need to, we need to pray um, always. Uh, we, we can't get very far along um, on, our own, uh, on our own power here, on our own competence, whatever that may be. We, we need to invoke you and ask you, Holy Spirit, come. Uh, be at work through the preaching of the word. We thank you that you've ordained this uh, means of grace for us. Um, we don't want to expect too little of it, but we want to expect much of you because you're a great king and a great savior. Um, and you've told us uh, that uh, your word will not go forth and return empty. And so, Lord, we uh, would ask uh, that you would uh, really bear fruit uh, through your word in our lives, within us, among us, uh, not only that we would be blessed and that you would get glory, but also so that many would come to know you, that the city of Santa Fe would be blessed because the gospel is being preached here and ministered and lives are being shared. So, Lord, do all that uh, through the preaching of this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as, as we look at this this morning, I think you know, as important to understanding what's being communicated is to pay attention to how it's being communicated. Um, Mark very often uses this technique in his Gospels. If you kind of get an eye for it, you'll see it all over the place. Biblical call, scholars call it interpolation. Um, I, I, I call it making a sandwich. Uh, Mark is always making sandwiches. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is he'll take, he'll take one story and he'll layer into that story other stories uh, as they, as they kind of play out. And then, you know, all of it communicating, you know, one singular truth about, about who he is, about what he's doing. That's what Mark's doing here, uh, where you get one account and then another account sort of layers into it. And then you return back to the original one, kind of like a sandwich. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see how several of these accounts combined to tell this singular story. A story, I think, that is defined by desperation, by delay, and then by deliverance. Now, for a while now, Jesus has been around the Sea of Galilee. Just before this, we saw that he was on the other side of the lake, uh, the Gentile side, and, you know, barely got a foot out of the boat before he is waylaid by a raging demoniac and now he's back on the other side of the lake, on the Jewish side, and he barely gets a foot out of the boat before he's waylaid by a raging crowd. And from that crowd, a person identified as a ruler of the synagogue, we actually are told his name, Jairus, emerges. Uh, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal to see someone like this coming to Jesus. Jesus um, is being met by someone who uh, we're told has great power has great influence. He's a religious leader, and he collapses at his feet. And that's especially kind of striking since up to now, there's been a very uneasy relationship with the religious leaders, hasn't there? Uh, they've called him a blasphemer. Uh, they've interrogated him about his failure to fast properly, about his failure to observe the Sabbath properly. They've condemned him for being with the wrong kinds of people, with eat, for eating with tax collectors and sinners. They've even gone so far to say, you know, we think you've got a demon, and we think you're doing the devil's bidding. So when one of those guys, one of those people from that kind of class of rulers runs up to him uh, as soon as his boat hits the beach and falls at his feet, you know, that kind of makes you sit up straight and go, what's going on here? 
Uh, in fact, this is a desperate man. Um, this is a desperation not unlike what we saw on the other side of the lake when the demoniac uh, came to Jesus, who also rushed to the boat, who also fell at his feet, and who also began begging him. And soon enough, we find out why this man Jairus is so desperate. His daughter is dying. Uh, our translation captures it well. Uh, the sense here is she's not merely dying. She's not merely in bad shape. She is at death's door. Uh, so, you know, Jesus had a reputation among religious leaders like Jairus as something of a hellion, but he also had a reputation as a healer. And that's why he's here. That, that, that means that whatever else Jairus may think of Jesus, he thinks maybe, just maybe, you know, this is the person who can heal my daughter. So Jesus agrees to go with him, and they head off to the house uh, with this huge crowd pressing in all around him. And then we get the other layer to the story. Because working her way through this throng is a woman. Uh, we're never told her name, uh, but we're told a lot about her. She's a woman who's contending with a discharge of blood, we're told, for 12 years. Uh, and not only that, but in those 12 years, has, has suffered under many doctors. That is to say that not only is the, the condition that she's dealing with brutal, but every attempt at curing it has been brutal. This discharge of blood certainly refers to some kind of uterine bleeding, which presented, you know, the woman with an additional terrible burden, and that is that according to Jewish law, she's rendered unclean, uh, ritually unclean. And that means that this was not merely a personal health issue, this was a social issue. Uh, this, would, uh, this condition would have rendered her, for all practical purposes, no different than that of uh, being a leper. Uh, she was understood to be unclean, and uncleanness was not kind of your problem, it was a community problem, because uncleanness was considered transmissible. Under uh, this particular tradition, you know, if this woman sat in a chair and you sat in a chair after she sat in the chair, you had to go to the priest and get cleansed of that in some way. Uh, because her uncleanliness was thought to be, you know, something that could get off on you. So here we have all that to say, you know, someone dealing with the terrible burden of not only what's going on with her physically, but being put into the, but because of that, the nature of that problem, she is being isolated precisely at the point where human touch and human care and community is most vital. So we know this is a person enduring not just physical suffering. Mark tells us she's, she's dealt with economic suffering. She spent all her money trying to find a cure. Uh, social suffering, she's, you know, a walking source of uncleanness according to what everyone thought. And then all of that, of course, would, would deal with you in a terrible way psychologically. You know, feeling isolated and rejected and marginalized in that way. So when you step back... And pay attention, you know, to where Jesus has been in this last chapter or so, whether he's on the Gentile side of the lake or the Jewish side of the lake, we're finding that there is a brokenness that, you know, isn't easily remedied. You know, that on the, on the Gentile side of the lake, a community was dealing with someone who they tried to wrestle and tie up and chain down, you know, as this problematic, spiritually afflicted man, only making matters worse, only 
serving to dehumanize him further. And now that we're on the Jewish side of the lake, there's a community who's been wrestling and tying up and trying to chain down the problem of this woman's physical affliction, and, and it only makes matters worse. Demoralization, dehumanization. But whether it's the physical chains being put on a demoniac or the law chains being put on this woman, on both sides of the lake, again, it's clear that human beings are incapable of solving the problems. Whether they're demon problems or disease problems, underneath it is a deep brokenness, and every attempt to control it or heal it has only exacerbated the problem. So this woman, like Jairus, is also deeply desperate, and that desperation drives her to make a decision to get in that crowd and take matters into her own hands. It's interesting, Mark lets us know, kind of lets us in on her thinking. Uh, she's got a strategy, and her strategy is this, if I could just touch his garments, I'll be healed, I'll be made well. Um, and, and that strategy is a really big deal. Mark mentions it not just once or twice, he mentions the touching of the garments four times in this passage. And you, and you kind of understand, you know, she's done with medicine, she's done with religion, now she's going all in on superstition. You know, if I can get my skin on that fabric, on that holy relic of the healer, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be good. I'll be healed. So she puts her plan into action. She works her way into the scrum. Uh, she, she's clearly concerned about anonymity. Mark tells us, you know, she snuck up from behind him. Uh, you know, all of it kind of minimizing uh, the danger of being identified as that unclean woman that people know about, all while, you know, just reaching to get that finger on the hem of his garment. And wildly, it works. She touches the garment, and the, not only does the bleeding stop, but she immediately feels in her body that she's completely healed of the disease. She senses in her being as if the disease never was. She's 100%. There's no, there's no healing process. There's no recovery period. There's no, you know, go home and take a few Advil and drink lots of liquids, and, you know, in time you'll be good as new. It's immediate. And with that, her plan is, as quickly as she got in, she's planning to get out. Uh, mission accomplished, slipped away, problem solved, except a problem remains. And that problem is called Jesus, because he's not going to let her get away. So he stops, and he asks the question, who touched my garments? Now, it's hard to overstate how ridiculous this must have sounded to everyone there. Um, Jesus has essentially been crowd surfing his way to Jairus' house, um, with everyone pressing in on him, right? And so, I mean, I've, you know, in my younger days, I've spent enough time at rock concerts, and I've spent enough time in my life on crowded subways to know that when you're in this kind of situation, this kind of environment, the answer to the question of who touched me is everyone. Everyone touched you. And yet, Jesus has this sense that in the throng, there's actually one person who really touched him. Um, it's not different, in, in fact, from the sense that the woman had in her own body. 
Uh, she has a definitive and immediate sense in her body that she is healed. And Jesus also has an immediate and definitive sense that something happened in his body. And the way Mark puts it is that he senses that power has gone out from him. Um, we've seen a lot about power in this gospel. Um, the uh, Jesus's power, uh, the, the power of the storm that came up on the boat, demonic power, certainly. Um, this is actually the first time in the gospel the word power is used, the word dunamis, the word from which we get uh, our word dynamite. Um, and and it's, it's difficult to get our heads around this, but Jesus has just experienced in his body the sensation not only of power going out from him, but going into someone else. That's the question. Who touched me? All that to say, Jesus realized there has been a healing. So he stops, and he calls for the person uh, to identify themselves. Now, it's important at this point to be mindful of where we started here and what Jesus has been up to. Because as he stops, uh, we need to remember that he's on his way to Jairus' dying daughter, uh, who's uh, at death's door. And, you know, that's a wild thing because it means that Jesus is taking time when time is of the essence. Uh, certainly, you know, the question about who touched him might have seemed crazy, but actually it's the stopping in this context that I think would have seen even more seemed even more crazy. And, and, and maybe crazy isn't the right word. Maybe uh, frustrating, irrational, maybe pushing it a little further and saying, you know, cruel, insensitive, incompetent. What are you doing? I mean, not to minimize this woman's chronic condition, but miserable as she's been, she's managed it. We're told how long she's managed. She's managed it for 12 years, but Jairus's daughter, you know, her life hangs by a thread, and, and it may be a matter of minutes, seconds even. Imagine your child's life hanging by a thread in the emergency room, and her only hope being the arrival of the doctor, and you find out, you know, that the doctor's running a little late because he stopped to speak to someone about their sciatica. What would you think of a doctor like that? You'd be screaming malpractice. Triage certainly would dictate that tending to the dying girl is a far greater priority than stopping to figure out who touched you. So Jesus, in this moment, appears to be lacking any appropriate sense of priority, any understanding of the situation, any sensitivity even to the crisis. And you can really feel the, te the, the tension in the text, I think. You can kind of feel people rocking on the balls of their feet, gritting their teeth, saying, you know, under their breath, come on, Jesus, let's hurry it up. And yet, Jesus will not be hurried. His attention is wholly on this woman. And he calls her out. And, and as he calls her out, it's a little bit painful. I mean, every now and then, you know, I mean, Greg and I are used to being up front. We're fairly comfortable with it. Yeah, every now and then, we'll call someone up like we did this morning, a, you know, a new member thing or someone to speak. And, you know, it's, it's hard for people. You know, some people aren't into that. Public speaking, they say, is, you know, up there with like imminent death is one of the great fears, right? And, and this woman, this woman is being called out, you know, with all her plans for anonymity. And here he calls her out and it is painful. In fact, Mark says she comes forward terrified, trembling. 
And, and you kind of wonder, you know, Jesus, hasn't she been through enough? I mean, isn't the healing enough? Just let her go away in peace. You know, if Hollywood was writing this, you know, Jesus maybe would have locked eyes with her across the crowd, given her a little wink, and on she goes. You know, everything, uh, you know, slipped away in peace. She's all healed and everything's good. But Jesus will not countenance that. And as she comes forward, she, like, Jesus, like Jairus, collapses at his feet. Uh, and as she does... She spills her guts. Mark says, he, she, she says the whole truth, and, and I take that to mean all of it. Her, everything about her condition, her 12 years of suffering, her shame, her shunning, why she snuck into the crowd, why she touched, her gar, touched the garments. And it's kind of at this moment that you can begin to see, painful as, as it sort of feels, it's, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important for the woman. Because this act of engaging with her in such a personal way and paying such attention to her and, and doing that publicly and hearing her story um, shows that Jesus has a concern not just for, for her healing, but for her wholeness. That, that she would be recognized and restored as a whole person, a person worthy of his attention, worthy of his priority, worthy of his care, worthy of, you know, integration back into this community. So she's been, you know, healed of the hemorrhage, but now he's healing her of the shame. But, but I want to notice this too. You know, Jesus listens to her. Uh, she tells her story. She tells the whole truth. Uh, but he doesn't merely listen to the whole truth about her. He's also determined that she know the whole truth about him. That's really critical. It's so critical, especially when you consider the fact that had he let her just slip away, it is highly likely that she would have attributed that healing uh, to her plan and to Jesus' magical clothing. So it's significant that when he speaks to her, you know, he's not fixated on the illness. He's, in fact, fixated on two other things that are, that are vital to her full healing body and soul. He speaks to her about her identity, and he speaks to her about the instrument that has made her well. And, you know, this comes through in the very first word he says to her. He, he addresses her as daughter. He doesn't say woman. doesn't say lady. doesn't say whatever her name was. He, he calls her a daughter. This is the very opposite of being a pariah or an outcast. In fact, it is a full-throated repudiation of that, of being discarded and demeaned and damaged by the community and maybe in her mind even by God. No, she's a daughter. Not, not merely a community member, but a family member. That is her identity. That's who she is. And, and Jesus' intent to go even further than that, he, 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 wants to, he addresses her that way, that, that she would know that that's who she is, but he's every bit of as intent that she know how she, she knows how she became that. How did she become a daughter? Well, he points to the instrument that made her well. We know she had a plan. We know we had, she had convictions that drove that plan, but it wasn't her plan that healed her. And it wasn't Jesus' magical clothing that healed her. Jesus tells her what it is that has made her well. He says, it is faith that made you well. Faith. And And... You know, if we did 45-minute and 60-minute sermons here, I would spend the next 20 on faith. 
But I just want to pause here and say, pay attention to it because it's so critical. Jesus says, this is what has made you well. This is what has brought you life. This is what has given you the identity of being a doctor or, or a daughter. That is to say, faith is not some weak, inert, you know, blanched thing where we sort of, you know, crack the door open for Jesus and then, you know, spend the rest of our life earning, you know, singing for our supper that he would love us. It is the instrument by which the Lord affects the power of God unto salvation, and it is that which grows you in Christ. The theologian P.T. Forsyth said, faith is our relation not to what we possess, but to what possesses us. And it is faith in Jesus that is the source of this woman's healing in body and in soul. It is the source of her physical deliverance. It is why she is a daughter, so that she would find herself not merely in possession of health, but possession of the fullness of life. And so faith is that which nourishes and contours and directs all of life for good or for ill, I would say. So when Jesus tells the woman that her faith has made her well, he's saying, you know, even in your ill-conceived, half-baked, semi-superstitious, anonymous, slip-in-and-out-of-the-crowd plan... Here's the critical thing. I was at the center of it. You were coming to me. You threw your lot in with me. She turned to and was determined to get to Jesus. And that was life for her. And he tells her that. And then he gives her what at first looks like a benediction. But again, it is an unfolding of the, of the magnitude, the potency of faith. He adds... He says, you know, go in peace. And then he adds this. He says, and be healed of your disease. Now, that's a funny thing to say, isn't it? Because she has been healed of her disease. Mark just said this whole thing of how she immediately knew she was fully healed of her disease. But, but in, in saying that, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not just giving you permission to make your exit. I'm not just congratulating you for that one bold moment of faith. I am commending to you a lifetime of faith. I am commending you to enter into a relation to me which is defined by ongoing faith. Enter into your wholeness, your fullness, your well-being. Enter into what, you know, in, in Jewish parlance would be the shalom. The rich relation with the God who made you in his image and is not just there in the hard times, but is your God and you are his people. Continue to believe Continue to have faith, sustaining, saving faith and sustaining faith. So there are bigger things than merely being disease-free, but now enter into the deeper healing from the affliction of self-trust, from the affliction of superstition. Turn from that and enjoy being my daughter. Enjoy your healing. Enter into the shalom of that and enjoy the wholeness of life and fullness of me because Jesus always gives more than you could ever ask or imagine. Now, again, this is all happening as Jairus is standing by on pins and needles, and it's a wonderful story of the woman, but you can imagine Jairus standing there, hearing Jesus call her daughter, and thinking, has he forgotten about my daughter? <laughs> you can imagine him maybe chafing a little bit with the thought that, you know what, she kind of slipped in from behind you anonymously and was trying to get away, and you're paying all this attention to her. I didn't do that. I ran right to your boat. I collapsed at your feet. You know my name. 
I was first in line. Now she's getting all the attention. And, and you know, and, and oh, by the way, my problems are a lot worse than hers. And it's precisely in that moment that Jairus' worst fears are realized. Some people come from the house and they tell him very bluntly, very directly, your daughter is dead. Now, that's devastating. And they add this little comment, why bother the teacher anymore? Now, there's a little dig in that. Um, Jesus, after all, is a teacher. Why are you going to a teacher for a healing? If he was ever relevant to your crisis, he certainly isn't now. And, and, and Jesus hears that and he responds. And he says, again, putting a stake in the ground on the potency of faith, he says, don't fear, only believe. Believe. And in saying that, Jesus exposes himself once again to the charge of being ridiculous. Don't fear, keep on believing. Well, guess what, Jesus? Our worst fears have been realized. And I don't see how something like belief matters much now. Doesn't seem very practical. Now, you know, getting as close as, to the language as we can, he's saying something similar to what he has just said in this sort of benediction to this woman. Uh, it's, it would be better to say in terms of the tense of this verb, not don't fear, only believe, but don't fear, keep on believing. You know, he's making much of faith, of its potency, of its present power. So when he says keep on believing, he's, he's essentially referring to kind of, Jairus, you were here a minute ago, and let's pay attention to where you are now, because a minute, you know, not long ago, you had a little bit of faith. You had enough to run and expose yourself as a desperate man to me on that beach, collapsing at my feet, asking me to come and see your daughter, trusting that maybe, maybe I could, ju I could just heal him. You came with some desperation then. You looked to me as your only hope. Now it's critical to keep on believing. Stay with that original conviction. Now, this kind of echoes with some of what we've seen in this gospel already, right? The story of Jesus calming the storm. You know, the storm crashes on the boat. All the disciples cry out. They're dying. And yet Jesus allowed the storm to come with all of the ferocity that no one would ever welcome. And all the while, seeming, much like he does here, kind of out of sync with the events, um, with everything going around him, he was asleep. And yet, you know, were it not for that storm with Jesus, imagine what they'd have been denied. They'd have been denied the truth that there is in Jesus a power greater than the storm. They really couldn't have learned about him and his lordship in any other way apart from those terrifying events. And there's something like that unfolding here. We're seeing, in fact, that that was not the last storm in this gospel, but Jairus is in one right now. And it's the last place he ever wants to be. And it is in this place, this precise place, where actually people are quickest to walk away, quickest to enter into the disappointment, to be convinced that they're unloved and rejected by Jesus, deciding, you know, as Jairus' friends are urging him to, let's not bother with the teacher anymore. But even as he's being urged to walk away, here's what's also important to see. Jesus never walks away. Jesus actually persists. He leans in, he stays, he sticks, he urges, he exhorts. He tells him, you're not alone in this. And the story is, in fact, over. Uh, don't fear, believe. 
He's determined not to let the desperation, you know, that showed some indication of faith that drove Jairus to him, harden into a disappointment that would drive Jairus away from him. But he's saying, stay with me in this. You know, and I want to say, this is the most important event in Jairus' life. This is a bigger deal even than, you know, the report he has just gotten. His, his daughter's died. But the, the biggest thing in his life right now is, will you stay with Jesus? Or will you walk away disappointed, not bothering with the teacher anymore? And Jairus sticks with him. And they go to the house. And the mourners are there grieving. It was common in this culture once death had occurred for you know, a, a kind of script to play out. Professional mourners had been hired uh, to give the family full vent to their grief. And everyone's expected to honor that as you enter into a scene like that. And Jesus walks right into the middle of it and asks, you know, why is everyone making such a commotion and why are you all mourning? Jesus doesn't follow the script. It's almost like he's sovereign and in charge of everything. So even though he's just arrived, he hasn't entered the house um, he hasn't gone into the room. He hasn't seen the daughter. He has the temerity to tell everyone that the child isn't dead, but sleeping. And, and just to be clear, sleeping is not their colloquial way of talking about dying. Like we talk about, like, no one dies in America. They pass away. Uh, that's not what's going on here. And we know that because when he says that, everyone laughs. And they laugh because the difference between death and sleep is so great, it's laughable. She's not dreaming. She's dead. But it's important to pay attention to Jesus' language here because he's spoken about sleep before. Uh, back in the parable of the sower in chapter 4, um, this is exactly, using the same exact word, how Jesus describes the seed that goes into the good soil and bears fruit in time. Uh, the seed uh, for all the world looks to be dead. It's buried never to be seen again, except it isn't dead, it's sleeping. Uh, that's how he explains the seed. It's covered up. It looks lifeless. You think you'll never see it again. You think nothing good will come from it until the day comes when it springs up from the ground and you find out that seed wasn't dead. It was sleeping. So Jesus presses in and clears the room of everyone where the little girl is, uh, except for a few disciples and her mom and dad, and he grasps her hand. And Mark reports here what he says. Uh, he, he, he reports it uh, in Jesus' native language, Aramaic, uh, untranslated. And, and just to pause here, this is one of the many places in the Bible where you have a wonderful picture of the authenticities of the gospel as firsthand accounts um, that have been uh, transcribed and passed on to us. Because what you have here is an in-room personal report of what happened uh, in this event, the disciples were in the room. They reported the story later. You get this up-close moment. You can, you can just hear Peter telling Mark this story and going, and you know what? We went in there, and he grabbed her hand, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Talitha Kumi. And what's so special about that phrase is not the, the Aramaic. It's the ordinariness of it. Uh, it's the kind of thing this little girl had probably heard every morning of her life. It's the kind of thing her mom and dad would say to her when they would come into her room in the tender kind of everyday language of the family. They would come in and say, Talitha Kumi. 
wake up, sweetheart. Time to get up. And Jesus says that to her. He grabs her hand. He says, wake up, sweetheart. And she wakes up. She doesn't, like the woman, she doesn't need to recover from anything. She just wakes up and walks around. And, and, and you know, Jesus says, uh, let's get her something to eat. Like she's going about her normal daily routine. All of this at the grasp of Jesus' hand, the only grasp uh, that is able to turn the horror of death into a normal morning in the house when you're waking up from a good night's sleep. These are two stories, two people, different people. But, but it's the same story. Uh, it, it's, it's the same story of people desperately in need of Jesus and people not giving up depending on Jesus. Both getting from Jesus more than even their wildest dreams had hoped for at the start. Jesus had more on offer for Jairus and his family. They, they, they wanted restoration to health, and Jesus gave them a resurrection. Uh, he had more on offer for the woman than she desired for her health. She wanted physical healing, and she got from him that and restoration to the community, wholeness in person, restoration to the Lord. And each of them came to this critical point most important points in their lives, I think, when they could have turned away from Jesus, convinced that he lacked power or mercy or love, and yet rather than allowing the desperation and the confusion and the heartbreak to drive them from Jesus, they allowed that to drive them to Jesus, falling at his feet. And they came to find that, in fact, the real danger in life, please hear me, the real danger in life is not expecting too much of Jesus, it's expecting too little. That's when you're in trouble. And that fact puts the question to us this morning, you know. People like us who, who let's be honest, have asked the question, I mean, you, you have to from time to time, what is Jesus up to here? Why is he allowing this in my life? Why is he, you know, why doesn't he hurry up? Why aren't his priorities more in order? You know, all those questions that drive us to the, to, to the, that Terrible question, why bother with Jesus anymore? But wherever we may be, don't lose sight of where Jesus is. Jairus and the woman didn't have a grasp of their own situations. They couldn't see where it was all headed. They, they, they certainly had a bunch of wrong beliefs. But instead of letting those things drive them away, they drove, him, they drove them to him. And they were able to do that because he was there. He was calling them to trust in him. His boat hit their beach. He's there in the heartbreak and the suffering and the struggle with unbelief and grief and all the rest. And he never leaves. He just urges and persists. Don't fear. Believe. And, and here's the truth. Whatever we may be enduring, wherever we may be in life, Jesus is not only there, he's gotten there first. He's gone ahead. Uh, Jesus is uh, the one who willingly let go of intimacy and community with the Father, that leaving heaven to take on the heaviness of our humanity, that we would be restored. 
Uh, he took our shame that we would get sonship. He takes our diseases that we might be made well. He endures death so that when death lashes out in our lives, it doesn't bring ruin. It, in fact, shows us that he is the Lord of the resurrection. And, and he is here now, calling us not to fear but to faith and inviting us to let go of every other trust and to grab onto him in our desperation and in our weakness so that we, we would see that his power is far greater than we ever conceived and his love for us goes deeper than we ever imagined. So much so that when the day comes for all of us, when we take our final breath, we'll find that in fact we were sleeping. And we will come to hear these very words that that little girl heard from our Savior. It's time to wake up, sweetheart. So let's pray as we go to the table. Oh Lord, you're a great, great Savior. I thank you that you do not defer to our schedule, that you are not responding to our urgency, you are not bound up by our nervousness, and our fears, but you are sovereign, free, loving, powerful, ruling and reigning, and critically, you are, as your name Emmanuel attests, God with us. So Lord, you're with us uh, when death lashes out, when the brokenness afflicts us. Uh, Lord, you, are, you have certainly bound yourself to this body, the church, uh, and through it, you deliver grace. And we, you know, we hang on to that as we come to this table, uh, this table which attests to your saving death, but which also gives us a taste of the greater meal that we will enjoy with you when we enter into the resurrection when sin will be no more, when we will look back on all the trials and the tribulations and we will see, uh, you know, with, with newly dried tears that you were with it and you were with us in all of it and you were at work in all of it and that you have brought us to yourself. And so, Lord, would you come, would you attend to us as we come to this table? Um, you know, we're, we're, we're like Jairus, we're like the woman. Um, we, you know, we, we need to fall at your feet. Uh, we, we're, we're, we're incompetent uh, and insufficient to the world. Uh, we're, you know, uh, but you aren't. You have overcome the world. So feed us at this table. Attend to us. Um, Lord, feed us in body and in soul and build us up that you would get glory, that we would grow in faith, and that many would be blessed um, in coming to a saving knowledge of you. It's in, it's in your name we pray. Amen.